You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together. We turn to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Let's turn together to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we continue our series on this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 12, 1-11. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit... There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by that one Spirit to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, there are different ways to describe the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can call it a gathered community, which means that it has been brought together, assembled, collected, amassed from different places, nations, colors, classes, and tribes. It has been accumulated. And indeed, Jesus Christ has been the great ingatherer ever since the beginning of time, and he will be until the end of time. 
But yet the church is more than simply a gathered community. It is also, you can say, a saved community, which means that those who are part of this community have been rescued, redeemed, and liberated. And if you ask from what? Well, from life's most devastating disease, namely sin. Jesus Christ has come as Savior, and with his blood he has paid, ransomed, and set free a people who are in bondage to sin, self, world, and devil. But that, beloved, is not the end of the story, for the church is not only a gathered community and a saved community, it is also very much an endowed community. And what does that mean? Well, it means that the church has been on the receiving end of all manner of gifts, blessings, and benefits. In the church you will find riches beyond comparison. Not material ones, but spiritual ones. And now, beloved, all of these descriptions, as well as more that we have not mentioned, are things to be glad about. They represent treasures to count, benefits to savor, privileges to rejoice in, and riches to explore. At least ordinarily, that's what they are. But not, it appears, in Corinth. It would appear that in the city of Corinth and in the church of Corinth, many of these qualities represented instead more things to disagree about and to fight about. Yes, and that seems to have been especially true of spiritual gifts or endowments. You know, they had already managed to fight about worship, and they had managed to fight about the Lord's Supper, and now they proceed to fight about the gifts of the Spirit as well. And so, beloved, we need to look at this closer this afternoon as we continue our series on this letter of the Apostle Paul. I preached to you on the theme, the one spirit and the many gifts. We're going to deal with the spirit of true confession, the spirit of different gifts, and the spirit of common good. Well, beloved, our text, as you can see, opens or begins with a wish. And the wish is this. Now, about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. It's almost as if the Apostle Paul is saying to them, you can be ignorant about many things, and you probably are, but here is one thing that you really cannot afford to be ignorant about. And by ignorance, he meant, of course, lacking knowledge or understanding. In other words, he places a premium on their knowing something about spiritual gifts. But why? Well, if you look once again, you'll see two reasons are mentioned. The first is that such ignorance was part of the life that they had left behind. In the past, Paul says, they had been pagans. In the past, they had been influenced and led astray by mute idols. In other words, their life and their world had been impacted and distorted by idolatry. Silly superstitions, mindless incantations, empty rituals had controlled them. And even more, Paul says, mute idols had been in charge of their lives. 
And can you imagine that? How is it possible that things that cannot speak or communicate or are dumb or that inanimate things like wood and stone and silver and probably gold can direct anyone's life? But they had. In the past, Paul says, you had been under the power of dumb and dumber. But no longer. Things have changed radically. For now, you are under the power of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the triune God has come into your life and utterly transformed it. And where is the evidence of that? Well, it is found especially in the fact that now these same people go about confessing and claiming that Jesus is Lord. And you know, that's more than just a pious statement. It's more than simply a mindless refrain. It represents a life-altering confession. It's something that only the Holy Spirit can make a person say truly and wholeheartedly. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You see, the Spirit has been at work among them. And the Spirit enables these people to say all sorts of positive things about Jesus. But the main thing is this, that He is Lord. At the same time, you'll also notice that Paul insists that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. In other words, Spirit-filled people cannot curse their Lord and their Savior. It's beyond them. It's an impossibility. It cannot happen. Of course, you might wonder, why does he mention the latter? Perhaps you say to yourself, well, I can understand him pointing out or pointing to the Spirit as the source of the confession that Jesus is Lord, but but why bother to bring into the picture that matter about Jesus be cursed? Christians don't say that. True enough, but others did and do. For example, in Acts chapter 26, verse 11, the Apostle Paul describes his own wicked past. And he says, Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. Most likely, when he was still Saul, the Apostle Paul tried to get Christians to say, Jesus be cursed. After all, that was a regular feature of synagogue prayers in those days. In the synagogue of that time, there would often be a cursing of all heretics and apostates. And there's every reason to assume that the Lord Jesus was on that list. Another point to consider, of course, is the fact that Jesus has been crucified, and that spoke as well to the Jews of a curse. Cursed is everyone who hangs 
on a tree, Paul says to the Galatians. So here we have a situation in which people regularly cursed the name of Jesus. The Jews cursed him, and the Jewish persecutors tried to do, make Christians do the same. And they were not alone in this, for they were joined in it by the Roman persecutors as well. Church history records the story of Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, who was arrested and arraigned to appear before the Roman proconsul. And there the proconsul demanded of Polycarp that he swear by the Godhead of Caesar and blaspheme Jesus. In response, the aged bishop said, Eighty and six years have I served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? With that confession on his lips, Polycarp was fed to the lions. He would rather die a horrible death than say, Jesus, he cursed. And indeed, filled with the Spirit, he could not say it. And so, beloved, what the Spirit does is enable the people of God to make and to adhere to the good confession. And what is at the heart of that confession? It is that statement, Jesus is Lord. We don't know for sure, but the evidence seems to indicate that here we have the beginning of all creedal formulations and confession making. The first rallying cry of the believers was this very simple, but at the same time very powerful statement that Jesus is Lord. You know, the Romans went about in those days demanding, and many people did that, saying Caesar is Lord. That was one of his titles. But the Christians countered and said, no, not Caesar, but Jesus of Nazareth is Lord. The only Lord, the only creator, the only ruler. And only he deserves the praise and the honor, the tribute, and the glory of all people. But then we need to realize as well, beloved, that this confession is more than simply a slogan to utter or a banner to march under. It's also very much a principle to live by. If Jesus really is my Lord, then I will follow him every day and live my life according to his will. If Jesus really is my Lord, then that is something that's going to be reflected in all my words and my thoughts and my actions. If Jesus really is my Lord, then that will determine the way I work and the way I relate and the way I study and the way I spend and the way I live my entire life. If Jesus really is my Lord, 
and my business and my time and my marriage and my possessions and my everything will be governed by Him. That's what the Spirit wants as well. Not just a glorious confession from an empty heart, but a heart full of praise and thanksgiving to a glorious Savior. A heart of obedience. But then, beloved, if the Spirit is the Spirit of truly confessing Christ, He's also the Spirit of different gifts. The Apostle Paul elaborates on that particular point in the verses 4 and, and following. And you might wonder, why does he do so? Well, most likely because in ancient Corinth, the believers were busy comparing and contrasting their gifts. And further to that, some of them were claiming that their gift or gifts were a lot superior to that of their next believer. Probably it went something like this. My gift of wisdom is superior to your gift of faith. Or my gift of miraculous powers is better than your gift of interpreting tongues. Or my gift of tongues is higher than your gift of knowledge. And you know how that goes. Well, in some ways, it's like a bunch of little kids playing in a sandbox filled with toys, and they they grab the toy nearest them, and they proceed to insist on its superiority to all others, and even at the exclusion of all others. You know, and maybe that's the point. It's hard to be gifted and humble. So how does the Apostle Paul deal with that problem? Well, first of all, he points the Corinthians to the source of their giftedness. Consider verse 4 and following. There are different gifts or kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but the same God works. All of them. In all men. You hear what Paul is saying? He's saying, true, it's all those gifts, they're all very diverse. But you know, they all come from the same giver. In particular, they all come from the same triune God, the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. In other words, why argue about all of these gifts when they all come? from exactly the same source. But then note, it's the Spirit who's mentioned first. When it comes to spiritual gifts, the third person of the triune God leads the way. But then if the Apostle Paul refers the Corinthians to the same source of all of the gifts, he also refers to the variety of the gifts dispensed. And note in the verses 4 to 6, he speaks also about different kinds of gifts, different kinds of service, different kinds of, of workings. In the original, he uses three different words 
first word represents grace, gifts. The second word, forms of service. The third word, energies or powers. And he's not saying that what the triune God gives to the church through the Spirit are various capacities which fit different people for special acts of service in the church. But then, of course, you might also wonder what sort of capacities or gifts is Paul referring to? Well, you can see the answer follows in verse 7 and thereafter. You have quite a list of spiritual gifts. It's also good to remember that that's not the only list that you find in the Bible. We read from Romans chapter 12. You can also read from the end of 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4.11, 1 Peter 4.11. Interestingly, none of these lists are exactly alike. And I think that really means not only are they diverse, but they're also inexhaustible. I think here the Spirit is saying to the apostles Paul and Peter that whatever the church needs to be church, God provides and God supplies. But getting back to what it says in our text, what about Paul's list here? Well, notice it includes the following gifts, the message of wisdom. What's wisdom? What's this gift? Understanding or knowledge rightly applied. The message of knowledge. Knowing about the things of God, the works of God, the blessings of God. Faith. It's another word for confidence and trust. The gift of healing, making people well, restoring them to full functioning. Miraculous powers, the ability to do the extraordinary. Prophecy, the proclaiming and the explaining and the applying of the word of God. Distinguishing between spirits, in other words, the gift of being able to discern. A lot of times in this life what we contribute to God could also be contributed or attributed to the devil. And we need to be able to discern. Also speaking in different kinds of tongues as well as the interpretation of tongues are mentioned by the Apostle Paul. And beloved, when you take that list along with the other lists that you find in the New Testament, what you find is that, that some gifts appear to be ordinary and very practical, whereas other gifts are quite extraordinary, miraculous. For example, the gifts of wisdom, knowledge, faith, teaching, encouraging, acts of mercy, giving money, serving, are often considered to be among the more ordinary gifts. And on the other hand, the gifts of healing, miraculous powers, prophecies, tongues, the interpretation of tongues are seen as belonging to the extraordinary. And naturally, all of this raises one big question in our minds, and the question is, are all of these gifts 
also for us today. Now I'm going to comment in this regard on tongues and the interpretation of tongues later on, the Lord willing, when we come to chapter 14. But for a moment I want to confine myself to the gifts of healing and miraculous powers. What shall we say about them? Do they still happen? The miracles, healings, still happen. The answer to that question is to be found in more than a simple yes or no. For example, there are Christians who insist that miracles are just as much a regular feature of the church's life and ministry today as they were in the days of the Lord Jesus. But there are also other Christians who insist that miracles do not happen. And even that miracles cannot happen. The time for miracles is over, they say. Well, beloved, both positions are extreme. Those who insist that miracles are a regular feature of the life and ministry of the church are wrong. And why? Well, because if you examine the biblical record you will see that miracles were never regular. They happen at certain times. They happen whenever God's revelation needed to be authenticated. Think of the days of Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, the apostles. Miracles supported and legitimized the ministries and the proclamations of these people. And so for the late John Wimber and the Vineyard Movement to say that every time is miracle time is a distortion. On the other hand, to insist that miracles no longer happen is just as much a distortion. Who are we to limit God. Who are we to say what he can or cannot do? Is he not sovereign? Do we not confess that? Is he not free? In my more than 30 years of ministry, there have been more than a few things that I have seen that I would ascribe to the miraculous intervention of the Lord. Do I expect him to work miracles on a regular basis? No. Am I surprised when he does? No. God will be God. And he will use his gifts both usual and unusual, both ordinary and extraordinary, wherever and whenever he pleases. But then, beloved, if the same Spirit dispenses many and various gifts, there's a further question that needs to be asked, and that question is why? Why is the church today such a rich church? And then I'm not talking about real estate or buildings. 
Why has it been given so many talents, gifts, abilities, graces, working service? Well, the answer you can find in verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. What this means is that these gifts are personal, but they are not private. They're given to each and every believer. The Apostle Paul makes that point over and over again. Romans 12, I say to every one of you, 1 Corinthians 12, he gives them to each one. Ephesians 4, 7, but to each one of us. And the Apostle Peter chimes in, each one should use. All of God's children have been personally gifted by God. But at the same time, they are not private. Paul stresses they are to be used for the common good. That means they are to be used in the body and for the body. And their goal is to improve, equip, and bless the church as a whole. And that means, of course, beloved, that no believer is allowed to say to himself or herself, here is a gift that I have received from God that's mine to use in my private, personal life alone. It's only for me. That kind of thinking, that kind of talk is a perversion of the will of God. He wants the Spirit's gifts to be used in such a way that the church, the people of God, will become more and more equipped and enabled and empowered so as to be able to serve one another. Hoarding is out. Sharing is in. Selfishness is sin. Generosity is where it's at. Of course, I realize that in the midst of all of this, some of you may be asking yourself, well, what is my gift? And what am I supposed to to share out? How does one go about discovering one's gift or gifts? I suppose one way is by thoroughly examining oneself and one's abilities, but we're not always the best assessors of our own abilities. Another way is by asking others. Sometimes they see what you and I don't see. But you know, the best way to discover your gift may be simply to get out there among your fellow believers. As you live among them, as you listen to their stories, as you get involved with their lives, as you hear about their cares and their burdens and their needs, you'll often discover your gift. And you may find that you have a gift for listening, or empathy, or gentle admonition, or sharing or hospitality, or wisdom, or discernment, or knowledge. 
In other words, beloved, the gifts of the Holy Spirit rarely show up on a test or as the result of a survey, much less through a lot of personal introspection. They're usually revealed as we interact with one another, as we seek to carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so, beloved, the latter is the approach I would urge you to take. By all means, pray to God to equip you. By all means, ask the Lord Jesus to send the other counselor. By all means, pray for the Spirit to fill you. But at the same time, go out and serve among God's people and serve in God's church. Be there for the common good. Get out of the spectator stands. Be there for one another. And be there for the glory of our God and the praise of our Savior. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.